It's Thursday, May 19, 2022, and it's episode 36 of the Fantastic Comic Fan Podcast. I'm R.T. Fleming, and today we're going back in time, specifically 1972. Why 1972? Well, a few months ago I came across a fantastic blog called Attack of the 50-Year-Old Comic Books, done by Alan Stewart. He's been doing the blog for several years now, and each month he covers what happened 50 years ago in comics. It isn't an ordinary blog either. Alan does a lot of research, and his posts come off a bit scholarly. I like the blog so much that I asked him to find the show, which took a wee bit of arm twisting. He'd never done a podcast before. And now he's in it for a few times after his first taping. Now, technically, this isn't his first appearance. He contributed to the Neil Adams discussion in episode 35. However, for this episode, we'll go through the first few months of 1972, and in the future, we'll cover the rest of the year. One of my mantras has been comics from every era can and should be read in the context of those times. There are fantastic reads for, from all the ages just waiting to be discovered. Now, whether you're a new fan just jumping into comics or a diehard long-term fan, 1972 is an amazing year. It's the beginning of the Bronze Age. Kirby has jumped to D.C. And, well, listen to the episode and find out. It won't be boring. And maybe, just maybe, you might find yourself diving into one of those comics yourself. Before getting on with the podcast, I want to talk about a couple more things. First, this makes the third episode this week and one more coming. I want these podcasts to be different so that you, the listener, never know what's quite in store. But make it a good listen for you. So... Please review and rate this podcast. Suggest it to other comic fans. Share it on your posts. Look at the show notes. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, whatever social media is there. It's important because the more listeners who tune in, the more we might check out a new comic strip or help fund a Kickstarter campaign. So, I want to hear from all of you about the good and the not-so-good things about the podcast. What you like, don't like, suggestions on what to cover in the future. You are free to message me on Instagram, Twitter, or email me at fantasticcomicfan, all one word, at gmail.com. Now, let's get on to the podcast. Today, I'd like to welcome Alan Stewart, who does a really unique niche blog called Attack of the 50-Year-Old Comic Books. You can probably search it, but you can also find the link to it in the show notes and at the website, Fantastic comicfan.com. So Alan, I usually ask the um, guests, what was their first comic book experience or the first comic books that really introduced them to comic books and got them going? Right. Well, actually I do discuss this on the blog. I <laughs> mean, <laughs> <laughs> In the very their very earliest posts from uh from 2015, but um I'm not sure exactly what the fir- very first comic book I read was the the earliest, the oldest one that I owned that I know I got new as opposed to like as a back issue later um, was a Dell comic about Smokey the Bear. Really? And I probably got that. Yeah. And I, I may have been like, I think it came out in like in 62. So I was not old enough. I would have been, um, yeah, I would have been five. I wasn't old enough to have gotten it for myself. Probably my parents got it. My father was a forester, the Mississippi State Forestry Commission. And that's so like Smokey Bear was sort of like, you know, the mascot of the, of the house. So that's that's one. And then there may have been some earlier like gold key 
TV tie-ins like Daniel Boone or something like that. But the gotcha. first comic I remember buying for myself was Superman 180. It came out in August 1965. And uh, as I said, that's not necessarily the first one that I first comic I ever read, but it, it's it's what I think of as my first comic book. Because it registered it's it's stuck that, in it's your mind. It got me hooked. Yeah. Gotcha. It was a, yeah, I'm actually looking at the cover. It's got uh, Superman being swung around with a bunch of, uh, looks like almost like Hawaiian girls. It's got a Kurt Swan yeah, yeah. cover on it. Right. It's, yes, it's a Kurt Swan cover of Superman like being like tossed about by some uh, young, fairly scantily clad uh, woman. And, you know, I, I don't know what psychosexual effect that had on me at, at, at AJ. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> it's, 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 he's actually in the island of Florina, which is the only appearance yes. in it in the South Pacific. Right. So right. what ever possessed you to do this blog? Well, that's, it actually was thinking about that comic book or realizing, I guess sometime in um, 2015, I realized that I must be coming up on the 50th anniversary of when I first started really uh, reading comics, really buying comics. And that, I'm, yeah, it was just an impulse. I thought, well, it might be interesting to do a blog for at least a little while and write about how I first started getting into comics, just taking it, taking it as, these are my reminiscences of, you know, like of what it felt like then to be did a you, young comics fan and to be discovering these characters for the first time. Did you actually read all of these comics and collect them? Yes, yes. And that's not, and it's not everything. It's not everything that I bought. It's just it's it is especially once you get. How often do you yeah, post on the, the blog? I guess what really kind of got me going is I I remembered the cover of that Superman issue. I try to post at least once a week. How much research um, do you do? Usually there's a post on Saturday. Oh, too much. <laughs> Not enough. So Alan, do you ever use Mike's Amazing World to put together your blog posts? Yes, that's an extremely useful resource. I discovered it probably just within a few months of starting the blog back in 2015. And just it's, I discovered that I could just use that basically just go month by month and compare what the site had to what I remembered buying. Not necessarily what's still in my collection <laughs> because I have right. sold have sold or lost a few things over the years, but but at least but I have a pretty good memory for what I've what I bought. I'm just looking at a cover, you know, you just you, you know. So I was able to kind of just create a, a spreadsheet fairly quickly of just, okay, here's, this is all the stuff that, uh, that I got. And the, and part of the ones I want to write about, there are some months when there are more comics that I'd like to write about that I have time. And gotcha. there are others that it's like, uh, can I actually get, um, something Can I get like four? Cause you, know, you like to, to post at least weekly. I, at least I do. And there's been, there are some months and actually there's a period that I almost stopped buying comics from late 1969 through like late spring, early summer, 1970. And I can't tell you exactly what it was. I think part of it was Marvel going briefly to a policy of no continued stories. Yeah, um, that was, that, 
that stuff. <laughs> I've read some of those old issues back then, and even the right. Like, I can't believe we're doing self-contained stories. It was a terrible <laughs> idea. Apparently, it was Martin Goodman's idea, who was the publisher of Marvel at the time, because I don't know, he had trouble following the continued stories or something, but but it didn't last all that long. I think that was one factor. There may have been other things that I don't remember all that well over 50 years later. But well, you don't have the memory of a, you know, what do you mean you don't have a good memory? That's only, <laughs> really talking about the, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. Exactly. I remember better than than some of my peers. Apparently, I have, you know, people who are about the same age as I, I, um, I am and have been reading comics almost as long who will say, you know, I can't believe that you actually remember, you know, picking that up or or what you felt about it at the time. And there, there are key comic books sure. going back to 77 and 78. Mm-hmm. And I can remember seeing them and right. buying them and picking right. them up and knowing, you know, it's, you're, you're right. It's like, but I can't remember what I had for dinner yesterday. But I can tell <laughs> you, uh, you know, where I got a certain comic book from. So exactly. how old were you in 1972, the year that we're going to talk about? I was 14 mm. until until July. Then I was 15. What a golden age to be reading comic books back then. Yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, you've heard, you know, the adage probably, you know, that the golden age of comics is 12 yes. or, or 13 or 14 or whatever, just whatever the sweet spot is. And I always, when I'm looking at these old comics, I, I keep try to keep that in mind. It's like they weren't necessarily objectively as great as they are in my mind but but, but maybe they were <laughs> you know m- my age is it's probably like 1977 when both right. dc and Marvel were throwing all kinds of junk out there's lots of titles <laughs> that people like like the revival of the teen titans people are going oh that's a bad title revival I'm like no that's really good stuff i like that and, see I, I didn't buy it at all so i mean i i'll take your word for it yeah, I, yeah. At fourteen. When we start reading comic books, that's always you know one's golden age. Yeah. Um, so- I, I revisited the um, I revisited the Teen Titans that that run of Teen Titans briefly. Or I should say I visited it because I didn't read it originally, but I visited it. Um, I guess it was last year when I did my history of Narc. Remember Narc, the, yes. the caveman, the caveman character. Yes. Um, it's sort of yes. I um, I was doing the. Uh, I did a post on the issue of Teen Titans. Where, where was he in Rebirth and Death Death Metal and all that? I haven't seen him anywhere lately. Oh well, well he well well Tom writer Tom King uh, killed him off in Heroes in Crisis. Oh, a couple that's of years right. Ago. So, but yeah, if you want the whole story of Narc, that particular blog post, whatever issue of Teen Titans that was, I remember last that. year. So, and and I I'm digressing. We're supposed to be talking about 1972. I know, and I, I yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, let's talk a little about, about 1972. I noticed right. that in the early, this is a time when especially DC were experimenting with their formats. They had a 100-page format for 50 cents and a 50, like 52-page format for like 25 cents. That, Do you remember buying was, those? Do you remember buying them extra issues, them big issues? Oh, sure, sure. And I mean, had, that must be really, that must have been really good bang for the buck because 10 years later-ish, no, I think lot. When DC started doing their um, dollar comics, I'm like, oh my gosh, 80 pages for a dollar. And I'm, you know, 20, 35 cents for regular comic books. Right. This, you know, and here comic books are 20, 25 cents. And you're like, oh my gosh, for another 50 cents, you know, 25 cents, I can get, you know, this many more pages. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting period. DC started or DC jumped to 25 cents 
48 pages, I want to say June of 1971. So at the beginning of 1972, they've been doing it for you know about a year, or excuse me, half a year. Um, they, they end up doing, doing it for 11 months before they, they throw in the towel. You know, Marvel went to 25 cents, 48 pages, basically for just one month in yeah. August of 1971. A couple of, a couple of um, books were 25 cents for longer than that, Tony and the Barbarian and a couple of others. But by and large, they, yeah, they just, they, and some people say that, you know, Martin Goodman, you know, did that on purpose to, uh, to, to stick it to DC. Yeah, something <laughs> must have worked because, you know, Marvel's been number one. So what was the, yeah, what was the big since title? Since 1972. 72, I'm sorry. What was yeah. the big title that people don't realize came out in 1972 of January? In January. Well, for, for me, the big title of the year is is Jimmy Olsen 147. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, this is the period when uh, Jack Kirby uh, was writing and drawing Jimmy Olsen. He was had come his, up. Was this yeah. his first issue? No, no. This is actually his next to last. Really? But this is his next to last, but what makes it special is that this is the um, the issue in which Superman goes to Supertown. It, this actually follows up on a plot thread he left hanging at the end of the first issue of Forever People back in December 1970. And gotcha. we probably may not have time on this podcast to go through you know, the entire background of the of Jack Kirby's fourth world. Huh. But, but your basic you know, thing, the, the two god planets of eugenesis and apocalypse you know, that are at war with each other. And uh, Forever People were sort of the young teen hippie uh, new gods. And Superman met them in their premiere issue. And at the end of the issue, he almost goes to Supertown. Uh, he's flying through the boom tube, you know, which is like this teleportation you know, vehicle. And he's, he can see it, he can glimpse it. And he wants to go there because this is a, a world, a, a city where everybody is super powered like him and he won't feel as alone. But at the end, he realizes that uh, you know, uh, there's stuff happening on earth. They need me, I can't go. One day I'll go. You know, Jimmy Olsen 147 is the day, or is the the story in which he finally gets there. You know, I was, I'm looking at the Mike's Amazing World, which is like we said, is a great resource. It had a circulation of 300,000. Jimmy Olsen did at the time. Yeah. And that was considered bad. I mean, <laughs> right. most, you know, most publishers now would sell half their souls to get a 300,000 print run. And exactly. on top of that, Jack Kirby wasn't, wasn't, treated as well as he should be even back. I mean, he, it, no. you know, it's like he was treated like, you know, the, the unwanted stepchild because, you know, he's, he's, he's here and we have an artist cover of Murphy Anderson, nothing wrong about Murphy Anderson. Right, right, right. But here it is, Jack Kirby doing this and some Yahoo, I'm being facetious, <laughs> is drawing the cover for this 52 giant. I mean, this, that just had sure. really. Yeah, it was. The whole thing with Jimmy Olsen was funny because it was like, you know, they put Kirby in the very first issue, you know, they put Kirby is coming, you know, like it's yes. a banner thing or, or, or Kirby is here rather when Jimmy Olsen finally came out because that was his first uh, new book for DC. But then it's like they didn't let him do the covers. You know, they had like Neil Adams covers and I mean, good covers, but it was like, you know, if you're going to promote the book as being, you know, we have Jack Kirby now, we got him from Marvel, you know, he's here. And I, you're probably familiar with the fact that um, they they redrew virtually all of the faces yes. of Superman and Jimmy Olsen. I mean, uh, 
or any of the traditional like super characters like Perry White, Lois Lane, when they showed up, they'd be redrawn. He handled that so he handled that so gracefully throughout his career. The many times is that the industry, DC, Marvel, whatever, just kind of like slapped him in the face. Sure. And I, you know, I it just boggles the mind that how he was treated. Some of his later interviews, yeah, he would sort of like, you know acknowledge you know how he actually had felt about it at the time but but at the time he was yes he was very gracious is there anything else about this january that you want to mention yes i will just say that it, in terms of that particular issue uh you know of, of jimmy olsen the fact is, is that not a whole lot happens in it no um you know it's it's a big payoff but basically what happens is that he gets there and kind of bumbles around uh, meets people, makes dumb tourist mistakes, sits down on a park bench, you know, with High Father, who's the ruler of the of the New Gods, and he doesn't, you know, know that's who it is. And finally, it's like it's yeah, I, you know, I guess I can just you know go should go home now. Yeah, you know, there are people who need me, and you know, High Father says I think that's a good idea. Uh, actually, your your friend Jimmy Olsen needs you right now, so he doesn't say Jimmy Olsen's name, but that's the that's the gist. So at any rate, it's just, but it was a special issue for me, and it's an issue that I'm glad. That Kirby got to do before he was off Jimmy Olsen because the next issue he was gone and from what I've read he you know was never all that crazy about the assignment he'd rather work no. on his own stuff so he didn't he didn't mind all that much but it's it's still a special story but yeah that's that's the that's my big highlight it's not the only thing I wrote about in January but it's 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 the it's my big highlight now what about February February a couple of really interesting things that happened in February uh let me, one let me, let me pause for a second you know people are like why are you talking about you know 1972 I'm like well because 1972 like a lot of the years has some really key things that happen in it that if you're a sure. comic collector interested in the comic industry right. you should actually read these things because every comic book should be read and enjoy in context of the times. You're not going to be, you're not going to read a, a, a Bronze Age comic the same way you're going to read a comic book that you just got off the shelf at your comic book store. Right. Some some context is, yes. is used. So anyways, um, go on, go on with this, this is issue. A, this is a good example. Green Lantern 89 uh, was the last issue of Green Lantern for a long, long time. Was that uh, the um, Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams yes. one? Yes. This is the um, the last issue in the uh, the the fabled run by Denny O'Neill, the writer, and uh, Neil Adams, uh, the artist who sadly has just recently left us. Yeah, we should um, pause for a second. We're taping this on the day that Neil Adams um, right. died, and I'm not sure when this podcast is going to go out. But yeah, his death just like it's just mind boggling that we lost him so quickly and unexpectedly. But yes, this. If, if you have not read the Green Arrow, Green, I'm sorry, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow run that he did with uh, Danny O'Neill, you are truly missing out. Am I not wrong? You are not wrong. There are people who find it, you know, preachy, um, a little heavy handed in terms but, of its approach to topical issues, but it really, but, but you, you know, a lot the of context of the time. A lot of um, DC books at the time turned out to be preachy. I was looking at some old Flash books and even Justice League, and I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Do, do we do we need to be so preachy about things? But yeah, it, it's 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 gone on to become an iconic run. Right. And it was such a, I mean, it was so it it was very striking to be a young person um, at that time. I mean, it was meaningful to all of a sudden have characters like 
Green Lantern, Green Arrow, the Justice League, whatever, uh, you know, talking about these issues that you were learning about on the news. My joke, I, I didn't have a, a pristine copy of Green Lantern 89 because I ended up cutting a, a panel out of it and using it in a, a project for like for eighth grade or whatever it was on, uh, on pollution. Because uh, because the issue had an environmental theme. Now don't you feel <laughs> bad about that? <laughs> yeah, I just I was the kind of I didn't really get into the collector mentality until like a few years later. This is this is the period where I'm still like you know cutting punching holes in my comics and putting them in binders and cutting things out of them and stuff like that. So. You know, we were talking about um, somewhere in this this year that we're talking about now. I'm not sure we're going to get to it in this podcast. We get to right. long, we're going to divide up. But Gary sure. Conway started running Spider-Man this time around his big run of Spider-Man, and he was only a teenager. Now I say that because when Neil Adams did Green Arrow, I'm sorry, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, he was right around 30. He got a late start in the comic yeah. book industry. Yeah. I didn't realize he was that old doing comic books. A lot of you know, a lot of them get started much earlier. Sure. Yeah. And that's Neil Adams, I think, tried to get in like at the very beginning end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s, and was basically told that uh, there's no place for you. You know, this is a dying industry, you know, go into, you know, advertising art or something. Now, like Alan, that. you're yes. a little bit old me, not by much. <laughs> How many times in your comic book career, I'm sorry, as a fan, have you heard that the end of the comic book is coming? <laughs> it's right around the corner. It's a dying industry. We are, there's not going to be comic books anymore. Oh, so many times that I just I don't even doesn't even register anymore. Basically, it's just sort of like, no, they're going to change. You know, it's you know people who are saying that, oh, you know, uh, Discovery has bought you know DC. They're just going to like you know just just basically do away with it. And so I just I don't see it. Well, here's the thing that people don't realize with DC Comics and even Marvel Comics, whether they make a profit or make a loss. That profit or loss is so small compared to the billions of dollars of revenue they do every year that that loss or that whatever, that is a rounding error. <laughs> I mean, really? Sure. And the thing is, it's still, you know, the, the ideas for the movies have got to come from somewhere, you know, it's like, yes. even if it's just, even if, if the comics are nothing else except just sort of like the, you know, the, uh, the, the idea farm, uh, you know, for the film and television and the media that actually makes money, I think just it makes sense to keep them around. So, I mean, we may not like to think of it that way as, as comic book fans, but I, I think that's kind of pretty much guarantees that comics will be going forward in a, in a form close enough to what the one that we know that we'll recognize them as comic books. You know, we were talking before we started the podcast that comic books used to be so diverse. I mean, we were talking about how you had humor books, war books, westerns. People don't realize that Tarzan used to be (laughs) the hot item. It was very popular. Sure. Gold Keys didn't Gold Key, Gold Keys ran it um, for years, right? Right. And then what happened in 72? 1972, the Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated folks, Edgar Rice Burroughs being the author who created Tarzan and an author who incorporated himself, I think sometime in the 40s or maybe even the 30s. Uh, very, very smart guy. Uh, but it's like he's, he's gone by now, but of course, or in 1972, but uh, his estate, his corporation still like looking to make all the profits they can. 
And uh, apparently Gold Key just wouldn't put out enough material. They're selling material overseas and they're just trying to get all the, I mean, Tarzan was, I think it's harder for younger people to realize. I mean, everyone still knows who Tarzan was, is. Uh, everyone recognizes the, the name of the character, but I mean, he was pretty ubiquitous in popular culture. Even if you didn't watch the movies or watch the TV show or read the comics or had ever read one of the books, I mean, he just, you know, Tarzan jokes, Tarzan, you know, sketches on TV, uh, uh, comedy shows. But at any rate, who's drawing Tarzan with this launch at DC? At DC, yeah, DC gets the license and they immediately give it to Joe Kubert. Who's Joe Um, Kubert? Because I know you know Joe and I know (laughs) Joe, but a lot of people don't know Joe. Aren't you talking about Andy and Adam? I'm like, no, 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 no. We're talking about their dad. Talking about their dad, um, who is probably still best known for his work on DC's war books. Yeah, Sergeant Rock. Sergeant Rock, Yeah, all of that stuff. Enemy Ace, all that stuff. Stuff which I frankly didn't read. I was not a war comics reader. So I I knew Joe Kubert mostly by reputation from like seeing, I mean, I would see, you know, his stuff on the stands. I just didn't pick it up and and, and buy it, but I was aware of his, of his reputation. And his first issue of Tarzan came out in February of 1972, Tarzan 207, because DC maintained the, um, the, the old numbering that went back to the forties. Let me pause for a quick second. I'm going to let people know that you can read the first Tarzan archives of Joe Covert years from this issue all the way through 214 on Comiscology Unlimited for free. You can borrow. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's uh, 200 plus pages. And I've, I've actually read it before in the past and his mm-hmm. art is just stunning on it. It's just, it's just phenomenal. It was a, it was a dream project for Hubert. He had basically pretty much decided to become a cartoonist as a kid reading the Tarzan newspaper comic strips that were drawn by Hal Foster, who later went on to do Prince Valiant in the newspaper strips. And uh, so he, yeah, he wrote and drew um, the, the Tarzan feature. And uh, the, the other thing that was interesting about the Burroughs license coming to DC is that they also, they started strips on a number of other properties, if you want to call them that, that had been created by Edgar Rice Burroughs that I, at least in 1972, really didn't have any idea existed. Everyone knew Tarzan, but you know, people didn't know John Carter of Mars or Carson of Venus or Pellucidar at the Earth's core. And so these are all strips that DC started uh, either in Tarzan uh, or in Korak, son of Tarzan. That's another character, you know. Right. You know, I, I thought Tarzan's son was named Boy because that's then, what, um, <laughs> I think they called him in the movies. A few years later, they changed the son title to Tarzan Family for a couple of issues. Right, right, right. Gotcha. And, there was al- and there was also a, a title called Weird Worlds. Uh, that starts up where a couple like the John Carter and Pellucidar features got gotcha. uh, got spun off into that. But you got yes, you got a number of just great artists on these strips. Old hands like Murphy Anderson, uh, people who've been around maybe not quite as long as as Murphy Anderson, but are still veterans like Gray Morrow. And then you had people coming in who were just just getting started in the industry. Uh, Alan Weiss uh, and Michael Kaluta whose work on um, Carson of Venus is just absolutely stunning. 
Um, that's another one that's available digitally. Uh, I don't know if it's Icomixology Unlimited. I know it's available, you know, for purchase. Right. Uh, yeah, and American Mythology is the, you know, the, the license is no longer with DC, obviously. I think Dark Horse has Tarzan. Uh, this little place called, a uh, firm called American Mythology. It's got, yes, it's got they do some great stuff. Carson and Pellucidar. And John Carter, unfortunately, I don't think it's available digitally, at least not. Uh, no. in, a in a legitimate format. No, um, Dynamite is doing all the new stuff, you know, but it's like as far as the um, authorized reprint or digital edition of the of the DC material, there's not one out there right now. I think let's jump to March. I was looking over Mike's sure. amazing real see if there's anything exciting that I wanted to talk to about. The yeah, yeah. yeah if, you, if you see something that I haven't thought about. No, no, no. I mean, I mean no, me. we can go all day because I mean, there's just, Really, people need to go to Mike's Amazing World and just pick a year and just you'll get you'll get, go down rabbit holes with this exactly um, site. March of um two of the, um, uh, sorry that March had Avengers one hundred come out. Yes, yeah, and that's to me that was the best of the one hundredth issue, you know, milestone issues that had come out yet. Yeah, Fantastic Four one hundred, which I didn't actually re buy and read when it came out, was the Fantastic Four bought you know fought a bunch of robots that looked like they're villains yes um and an amazing spider-man 100 that was better uh, amazing spider-man 100 um he he uh had a dream basically it was like a fever dream where he fought all his villains but it yes, wasn't real. i remember that but he, but he woke up but he woke up from the fever dream which he had because he had been taking he had taken a potion to try to cure himself of his superpowers and he woke up with uh with four extra arms now let's pause for a second <laughs> on that that four extra arm was stanley's last story for Amazing Spider-Man for a few issues. Yes. He took a break after that, right, handed right. the ball off to Roy Thomas and said, right. here, you deal with it. Later on, um, <laughs> I remember reading about Stan going, I thought you put the forearms into it. No, 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 nope. no Stan, you, you did that. You went, you're the one who screwed me over on that one. <laughs> um, it was very, yeah, I covered that on a podcast. It was very nice, right. nice, nice interview, interview with Roy, interviewed Stan, and it was really nice because it made Stan look not on a pedestal and not demonizing right. what people tend to do. Right. They either put him on that pedestal or make him into a bad guy and he's just a human being. Yeah, that, that's, brief, a very, that's a very useful interview. I mean, I've, I think I've referred to it several times. Yes, um, I'm looking at Batman 241, which we're not covering, right. but I noticed it has a Neil Adams cover again. Yes. But it's inked by Bernie Wrightson. Isn't that yes. an interesting combination? Absolutely. And they did at least one other, there's at least one issue of Green Lantern in the Green Lantern Green Arrow run that writes and inked the whole issue. And that's just, it, it really, it's a very interesting combination. Now, um, Astonishing Tales. Yeah. Now, did they, at this point, did Astonishing Tales have the split or is it just all Kazar? It's all Kazar. It had gone to all Kazar, I guess, in late summer, early fall of 1971. Because so it's been running just just Kaz yeah, Kazar, Lord of the Hidden Jungle. Because before that, they were doing their split work. Where one was Kazar, and I think what the other one was Doctor Doom. Okay. Oh yeah, that's right, Doctor Doom. Mm -hmm. So why is why why did you out of these I don't know several dozen comic books that came out in 
this month of March? Why did you pick up uh, Kazar's and Astonishing Tales? I picked it up at the time. I, for whatever reason, I was reading Kazar. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure why I kept reading Kazar. Um, I guess I, I guess the art was good. Uh, Gil Kane had been working on it for a while. Not at this point. I think John Bushima drew this. Yeah, issue. yeah I was just going to say. Roy was writing this. John Bushima was the uh, penciler and Dan Atkins was the inker. Right. But anyway, this particular story, although the reason that I blogged about it, uh, among all the things that I bought that bought in, in, in March of 1972, um, is because it's the second appearance of Man-Thing, uh, Marvel's premier swamp monster. It's his first appearance in a color story. The character of Man-Thing had debuted in Savage Tales issue number one, which was a black and white uh, magazine, Marvel's attempt to sort of uh, capture some of the same market that Warren Publishing uh, was was getting via a more mature reader, non-comics code approved, somewhat you know, more violent, sexier, bloodier, whatever <coughs> material at any rate. So there had been one issue of Savage Tales that came up from Marvel before Martin Goodman, Marvel's publisher, got cold feet. Yeah, Martin Goodman... Uh, um, uh, <coughs> Stan and really wanted to do the, the black and whites and Martin Goodwin, Goodman, sorry. Yeah, Martin actually kept getting gold feet out, you're right. And he just wouldn't keep it going for whatever reason. Right. But uh, but man thing, uh, which is your your basic, you know, uh, scientist. Monster. Yeah, swamp monster. But, you know, used to be a used to be a guy, used to be a human being, a uh, scientist, you know, who injects himself with a uh, what was eventually revealed to be a version of the super soldier serum, you know, that also ties into Captain America and all of that. Uh, uh, yeah. But at any rate, so yeah, it goes into a swamp and it's turned into this, this monster. There would act, this was actually the, the man thing. There's a, basically a separate man thing story in the middle of this Kazar story that was written by Lynn Wein and drawn by Neil Adams. Uh, really? Supposed to have been the second man thing's story in in savage tales number two but so basically it had been done they they had it they didn't really know it's like they had this work that had already been completed already written and drawn but no place and they didn't have it. a spot for it so they, they didn't have, they didn't have a spot for it so uh roy thomas just basically figured out that he could repurpose it and sort of just work it into the middle of an ongoing plot line in um in astonishing tales in the Kazar plot line and that's how we got man thing in the Marvel Universe and eventually Howard the Duck and just any number of other characters. It's funny because I'm looking at the cover for Astonishing Tales and there's no, there's zero, no. zip, no indication. Absolutely none. That Man-Thing is, uh, yeah, Man-Thing's in there. And it's it's Kazar wrestling a gator. Yes. Kazar's <laughs> wrestling never, a gator. <laughs> I would never, never guess he was in there. So I'm actually right. going to have to go reading this. For somebody that knows the comic lore, you know it much better than I do. I'm really impressed with the amount of little factoids that you've been able to pull out. There's another well, extremely big, well, there's lots of events for this year. There's another big event that happened that people probably don't realize. What, what character had their debut? In March, uh, Luke Cage. That's uh, the one. Hero for hire, uh, power man, uh, whatever you want to call him. Uh, the bulletproof black man, you know, which uh, is always, uh, always irrelevant. Just in recently, in recent years, it's probably been even more relevant than um, than it and was. Another comic book written by Roy Thomas, who was writing yeah, a lot uh, of stuff back then. Right, right. It's but anyway, yeah. This is Luke Cage was the first, not the first black superhero, 
No, that was maybe not even the first flex. And I'm not sure if we like looked into fan scenes and things like that, if it'd be the first black superhero to have his own comic book. But the first black superhero in his own continuing comic book from one of the major publishers, for sure. And it had a long and run. It went on for a very it, long time. It did. It did. And when it, this is a, an opportunity for me to say one of the things about my blog that is uh, that's can be somewhat unfortunate sometimes is that I only write about things that uh, about comics that I bought new at the time when they came out. And I was not uh, I was not smart enough or cool enough or <laughs> whatever enough to buy hero for hire number one when it first came out in, in, uh, in your defense back yeah. then there mm -hmm. was a ton of people don't realize right how many count let me see one two one three four five six seven eight nine ten there was like close to 100 comic books that came out that month. Yeah, it, there was a lot of competition on the stands, I will say that. And you, it know, wasn't and, like... and, you know, people don't realize realize that you didn't have nice fancy racks a lot of time. At, at, I mean, mm -hmm. you didn't have nice displays like you do at comic book shops. A lot of times you got on your knees down to the bottom of a newsstand with a bunch of magazines, thumbing your fingers through a magazine, looking at covers that caught your eye. Oh, right. that's the one I got to get. Right. They, they weren't as displayed, you know, as sure. nicely. There's one here. If you if this came out today, they'd be doing all the bells and whistles, but Wonder Woman 200 came out that month, too. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I, there, I forgot. You, you missed that one, Alan. <laughs> I did. I was, I was not buying Wonder Woman during the, well, I, was, I wasn't buying Wonder Woman pretty much for well, most of that, but well, most it, of that you know, period. But, it was, the mod period, the, uh, the, the Diana Rigg. Um, yes, this is, Wonder, period. this is the Wonder Woman who is depowered. She wore her white outfit. She's mm -hmm. actually in bondage in this issue. Okay. With, yeah, she's tied up with her mouth closed, but it's, I'm not bringing that up for that point. It's just, <laughs> it's just I mean, the cover would stand out, yes, but it's a 200 issue and it's like, oh, young, big deal, who cares? Right. You know, now, uh, uh, you know, they're celebrating exactly. 25, 75 issue, 50 issues, and then you got Marvel making wonky legacy numbering. Hey, this is a store 750 coming out. I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, by, 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 by whatever count, by whatever count that is, yeah. Um, and I know we we mentioned Avengers 100 earlier, yeah, but, and we didn't really didn't really talk about it. But what was um, yeah, what was special about that issue, or one thing that made it special, and for me made it more special than say Spider Man or Fantastic Four, is that uh, it included every character who'd ever been an Avenger, yes. even if it's only for like a couple of panels, like the Swordsman, um, you know, in one comic. And of course, that would it'd be a lot much larger cast today if they did that than it was in Avengers 100 yeah but it, but it was but it was uh it was just it was beautifully drawn by by Barry well at the time it was Barry Smith he goes by Barry yes. Windsor Smith now of course uh written by Rory Thomas uh it was just it was a very full issue and in some ways kind of overstuffed I mean you can look you can look at yes. back at it now and go they really needed another 10 or so pages but the thing is even for the anniversary or not really anniversary I hate using the word anniversary unless you're actually talking about years but for the milestone issues like that you know they didn't say okay we're gonna up up the page count for yeah. Yeah, 10 or 20 pages just you for this one special first, issue. Just it had to you know be what the same. first issue was that they did that to up the page. I think it was 
Fantastic Four 200? Yes, and it was, um, I believe, um, and Meyer Wolfman had to convince yes. Meyer Wolf right. to up the pages. Right, he had to, he had to talk him into it. Now, of yep. course, it's just, it just kind of goes without saying. And like you say, I think they did Avengers 750 a few months ago, and they just did yes. Thor 750, and these things are huge. I mean, they're yes. like, practically like, I would say phone books, but nobody knows what a phone book is anymore. But. You know, um, <laughs> my, my podcast, I try to cover digital comics and right. there's so many comic books that, I mean, we can only briefly mention because it's like it's outside of my niche, but right. I will say that Marvel and Archie does an astoundingly fantastic job of mm-hmm. archiving their older comics. Mm-hmm. DC, not so much. There's not so, much, so much. No, D, there's so much good DC in the Bronze Age that is just not archived yet. And fans are really missing out because I mean, you, recently, just to ch- change the stop, topic real sure. quick, recently um, Marvel archived all of Defenders, the whole 150 issues. There, wow. there was this big chunk like between 70 and 90, 75, whatever, that you didn't have. Now right. you have this big chunk that you can read mm-hmm. over time from the beginning of the issue, number one, through 150 without having to go through comic shops, without having to go by trades, without having <laughs> to worry about damaging issue number two that's worth X amount of dollars. That's, right, right. that's why I like these digital formats because you can sit there and really get into characters and stories. Yes, go out to the comic book shops and buy your heart out. That's what you should do with these older things. These platforms, Marvel Unlimited, and even DC to a certain extent, they're great platforms to check out some of these older comic books. Absolutely. You know what? I think we're going to pause here. We mm-hmm. did January through March, and we are going to make this a continued podcast and pick it up um, in uh, with the month of April. I'm not sure exactly when. Okay. Alan Stewart from his blog. What is your blog again? Attack of the 50-Year-Old Comic Books. What is it? That is a very fantastic name for a <laughs> blog. Thank you so much for joining me. The, the blog and information on some of the comic books we talk about will be in the show notes and especially on the website, fantasticcomicfan.com, all one word. Hope you enjoyed this trip down memory lane in 1972. Thanks, Alan. Thank you for having me, Ron. I've enjoyed it. Well, that's it for today's podcast. Again, I would love to hear from you at fantasticcomicfan at gmail.com. Remember, new episodes every Wednesday. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and I hope to see you next time.